0: Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick. While
1: well, many companies have begun to adopt the principles of lean startup in order to increase the pace and agility of their innovation initiatives, but most have had limited success in doing so. My final guest this morning is Jim Eichner, the author of a new book called Lean Startup in Large Organizations. Jim, start by providing us with an insight into your own background.
0: Thank you for having me. Well, I have a career in corporate innovation. So I've worked uh, with several companies leading innovation, R&D, strategy, and IT functions. And the focus, my focus is on bringing something new to the world. Along the way, I've learned something about what works and what doesn't work inside the corporate environment. So what inspired you to write the book, I was inspired because I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of new business innovation in particular gets stuck inside corporations. Uh, corporations invent something new that could create a new business, and they're unable to get out of their own way, and it ends up being brought to market by somebody else. And there are predictable uh, impediments. innovation, new business innovation inside large companies. And I wanted to isolate them and figure out ways of, uh, share ways of getting past them. And what
1: are the common problems that you see within large organizations that prevents them from innovating fast enough?
0: You know, there are a range of them at different stages of innovation. I think when you're building the innovation practice, uh, one of the biggest challenges is just getting the innovation team to be customer-centered in its orientation, to get out into the world and learn from customers and learn from other parties that are necessary to uh, to bring an in innovation to market. That's where I think the lean startup as an approach really excels. It, uh, it takes a matter that's of high degree of uncertainty about customer need, channel, business model, partnerships, et cetera, and systematically in an experimental approach uh, brings you from high uncertainty to low uncertainty. The irony is that the experimental approach that you use uh, often raises antibodies inside the corporate environment. And so a lot of what I've studied and written about is what those antibodies are and how you can overcome them.
1: So how is the Lean Startup, in a nutshell, actually implemented within organizations?
0: Well, the Lean Startup is, is based on, uh, I, I call it the how to learn and the what to learn rules. The how to learn uh, are Lean learning loops. They're basically business experiments. There's something you've isolated that you want to know, whether it's about the customer or the business model. You devise an experiment to try to learn it. Oftentimes, that includes a prototype. Uh, in Lean Startup, it's what they call the minimum viable product. Then you run the experiment, you learn from it, and you either keep going or you uh, or you pivot. You change direction in some uh, significant way. There are three things that you try to learn. One is what should the customer value proposition be, or as Steve Blank calls it, the product market fit. The second is what should the business model be? That's how you're going to go to market. And the third is how you should scale.
1: And Jim, another concept that you speak about in your book is innovation stage gate. What is that and why is it important?
0: So an innovation stage gate is a way of uh, going through those three uh, stages, I guess, uh, the customer value proposition, the business model, and the, uh, the scale, the growth model, and to do them in sequence. Uh, In Lean Startup, which is, uh, you know, operating from the ground, they're often done all at once. You build a small business and you make it bigger. It works for one small customer segment. And then you grow out and you adapt from there. You're working on the customer value proposition, the business model, and your growth strategy all at once. Inside a large company, that seems really chaotic and, uh, and unmanaged. And most large companies hate unmanaged processes. So what you do is take the three stages and you are the three things that you need to learn uh, and you put them in stages. First, understand the customer, their needs, the value you create. Second, understand what business model will let you capture value. And third, you incubate and learn how to scale the business and test it in the real world. Why
1: don't more companies put more resources into actually going out, engaging with the customer and listening to their needs?
0: I think that they think they already understand the customer needs, either from their sales force or user group or uh, or, or they believe that they understand uh, the customer in a way that the customer couldn't tell you because they're introducing new technologies that are hard for Uh, customers to appreciate or envision. Um, People sometimes go back to, uh, you know, Ford or or, uh, Steve Jobs saying, look, if I ask the customer, Ford said, they'll just tell me they want a faster horse. Um, Steve Jobs was pretty famous for saying the customer can't, I don't remember the quote, but can't uh, see the future. You have to create the future and help the customer to see it. My experience is that that's generally not true. People generally don't really understand the customer. They generally are not at the level of genius required to anticipate uh, customer needs at the level that Steve Jobs could. And as a result, they launch things that customers don't want. And just to
1: expand further on that topic, when we talk about philosophies in relation to innovation – Are the customers better when it comes to the evolution of a product or service or the revolution of it?
0: I think customers can tell you where they want to go next with an existing product or service. Uh, If you're good enough, if you listen to them and you listen carefully, uh, I think you're uh, you're able to leverage customer insight. That's what I call type one innovation. Type two innovation, where you're trying to create an entirely new business or an entirely new revenue stream, I think requires not that customers tell you, but that they show you. That's where the uh, on site insight, the ethnographic approaches to understanding the customer, spending real time in the ecosystem, observing, prototyping, iterating, and testing is required. Customers can't tell you, but they can show you. You can learn the world that they're in, where they've got challenges, what's working, what's not working, and using your knowledge of where technology is going, you can identify ways that you can create new value or a new world for the customer.
1: And many organizations are faced with innovation resistance within their own teams. What are the root causes of this, and how can they best be
0: overcome? I think the resistance uh, comes oftentimes from function that have a day job, whether it's IT or procurement or sales or, uh, or legal liability or intellectual property law. Those are all examples that I, I mention in the book. Essentially, they're there to do a job for the core business, and that job has generally been optimized for that business. Anything that you Im- impose on them for innovation is both a distraction from delivering their core commitments and a risk because they might make a mistake if they're dealing with something very different from, uh, from the world they uh, they're used to focusing on uh, those are risks I think I, I like to say that if we were in their shoes we'd probably do exactly what they do um, they're, uh, they're you know protecting the integrity of the core business. There are ways around this. It's, first of all, understanding that the objections are reasonable, not unreasonable. So try to understand what the concerns are and try to negotiate. Uh, Try to understand how you can do what you need to do to leverage the asset of the corporation or just to leverage the resources and how you can do so in a way that's not disruptive.
1: And Jim, you also speak in your book about the importance of creating asset-based opportunity spaces. What are
0: these and how should they be developed? It starts with the observation that if you're inside a large company and you're innovating and you don't leverage any of the assets of the core business, you're not likely to compete effectively in the marketplace. This is because startups are well-funded and very nimble. And if You're not leveraging your assets. They don't have the assets to leverage. You're kind of on an an even, uh, you're competing with them on an even basis. Whereas if you leverage the assets of your business, whether that's your, uh, your technology or it's your service network or it's some other asset of the corporation, your customer base, you greatly increase your chances of winning in the marketplace. So that's the reason for building them. Uh, I think the way that you build them is to start with where you want to go, you know, identify a world that you can uh, create for the customer and ask which assets might I leverage to win in that marketplace. And uh, when at Goodyear, when we were looking outside tires, we identified the service network as an asset that we had that, uh, others couldn't. There were lots of startups just delivering technology. We could leverage our service network, our brand, and our uh, um, a, a, our product as well in uh, in developing a services-led business model. Now, whenever you're doing that, you're you know you're disrupting someone somewhere, and that's why it's challenging. So the first question is, where does where's their value to be created what are the opportunity spaces second is can we win in those by leveraging assets that we have and third how do we do that in a way that won't really disrupt uh the core business
1: and jim of course amazon is a business model which embodies innovation but what can we learn about innovating the amazon way
0: yeah i think amazon is a master in in many things I mean, I think they're a very customer-centered corporation and they're easier to do business with than almost anyone. But one of the things that's most intriguing to me about Amazon is the way they're able to leverage assets, the topic we were just talking about, to move into very different businesses. So as an example, they started in books. And then it's an easy step to move into CDs or other things that easily go through the mo- the mail. But it was a big step to say, We have a customer base. We have an uh, online infrastructure that's really good, and we're going to open that up to people in other businesses. We're going to create storefronts for others to sell on our e-tail site. That was a big move to make, especially since they made pricing, uh, pricing transparent. Then they built this great infrastructure for delivery, fulfillment by Amazon. They let other people use that as well. John Rossman, who's Uh, part interview is is excerpted in the book, built the marketplace's business, and he talks about some of the challenges of that. Um, Amazon, of course, didn't stop there. Eventually, their software infrastructure uh, became cloud-based, and they opened up the cloud-based infrastructure to others, and that became Amazon Web Services. Again, people inside the company said, what, are we crazy? These are our crown jewels. But they did it, and now it's a huge business. Today, they're leveraging their internal training to create uh, uh, courses that anyone can take. They are leveraging their employee base to create a uh, a healthcare services business. They've, obviously, they've moved into, uh, from books into eBooks and then into Audible books and into into, uh, uh, streaming services. So every step of the way, they took an asset and they leveraged it into a new space. And that could have been disruptive or cannibalizing of the core business, but they accepted that risk in order to create the new.
1: And, Jim, from your own research into this space, how much of a problem is business model inertia, and how should it be addressed within an organization?
0: I think companies are generally very stuck inside their business model, and it manifests itself just in the way. People talk and think about the business and what makes it work and what doesn't make it work. Sometimes, especially businesses that have been around for 20 years, have very well accepted ways of doing things that make sense and things that they've learned that don't make sense that may no longer be true. Um, I think it was uh, Roy Rogers who said, uh, or, or Will Rogers, who said, it's not what we don't know that gets us into trouble. It's what we do know that just ain't so. And it's oftentimes true that the business model is a compendium of things that just so anymore or not for a a new offering that you want to make. How do you get around this? I think there are a couple of rules. One is recognize that a new business may have an effect on the existing business. At Goodyear, for example, when we developed a business that prevented over 80% of roadside failures due to uh, roadside failures for uh, long-haul trucks due to uh, tire problems. When we eliminated 80% of those, it obviously reduced the opportunity for our roadside services business, but it also created other opportunities to pull through product, to provide service uh, for uh, for tires that were not good here, tires on vehicles, and uh, for the service organization to uh, do the installation and, uh, and maintenance of the new, uh, the new products. There are ways of looking at the business model, understanding what will make it work for the customer, understanding what's needed from the core business to make that work, and understanding what the threats are in quantitative terms to sales or to operations.
1: Now, this is a new one for me, I have to say, Jim, but in your book, you address the concept of ambidextrous leadership.
0: Yeah, it's very hard for people at the same time to execute against challenging business objectives and to innovate in new spaces. And uh, Michael Tushman coined the term ambidextrous leadership. He also is interviewed for the book. Uh, It's basically the the question of how do you manage these two different worlds. It's very hard for someone to go from a meeting where they're, you know, they're focused on costs and operational efficiency and so forth, and then walk across the hall and go to another meeting where everything's uncertain, you're learning, you don't know even what the metrics will be or the timelines. And that's where the dilemma is. There are some executives who manage that very well and who manage the operations using more, uh, traditional, systematic business metrics and so forth, and who are able to manage the, um, manage the new business using a learning agenda. Those are what Tushman would call uh, ambidextrous leaders. He sees that there are very few of them. I see there are a few as well, in my experience. And in those cases, you do what he calls structural amb- uh, ambidexterity. You separate the new from the core and you have different leadership teams in those. And then the ambidexterity really needs to only be held at the the top of the organization. But I think we're gonna need to create more people who are able to do both. I think Amazon is building leaders like that right now, but all businesses to compete are gonna need to develop more leaders who can both execute with excellence and learn to create new businesses.
1: Finally, this morning, what are your top three tips for effectively implementing Lean Startup in large organizations?
0: I think the the first thing is to uh, begin with an understanding that if you're doing new business innovation, you're trying to create new businesses or new business models, you've got to start with a learning approach. And Lean Startup is the one I think is most effective, but there are others. The second thing is to understand that that's going to, engender resistance inside the organisation. So expect that. And the third is, this is something that the CEO cannot entirely delegate.
1: Well, if you've just tuned in, that was Jim Eichner, author of the book Lean Startup in Large Organisations and I'd like to thank Jim for sharing his expertise with us this morning.
0: Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick.